Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? You guys awake? You're extra awake today. I better not see anybody falling asleep. You got an extra hour of sleep. I hope you did not squander it doing something foolish last night. Uh, I'm feeling really good. I got a lot of sleep, an unusual guilt-inducing amount of sleep for a Saturday night. So I'm feeling good. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave. It's my great privilege to serve as the lead pastor on a great team of people here at Harvest. And we've been working our way through a sermon series called Life on Life Ministry. Life on Life. And it's a study of, of Paul's first letter to Timothy, but it's also a study of the way that the gospel has always moved through the human race. The way that spiritual growth has always taken place is as one life invests in another life. Christianity as a faith, as a way of living, has never been designed to be a solo practice. It's not designed to be understood and practiced by yourself. In fact, I would even argue that Christianity is impossible to practice alone. Because the vast majority of the things that we're called by God to do and to be can only be seen in community with one another. And so I want to just remind you that if you thought you could do this modern-day monk thing and retreat to the desert and be just you, God, and no one else, that's not real. It's not even biblical. It's a distortion of the faith handed down to us. And so I want to make sure we set that record straight. This morning, uh, we're going to look at a passage that comes from 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 10. And the title of the message is Intercession intercession, all right? Uh, Let's look at the passage together. It says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. I will address those last two verses A little later in the message, don't get overly distracted or offended by what those words say. We'll make sense of them soon enough. But I want to begin this morning's message by reading for you a modern parable. And it's a parable called The Life-Saving Stations, written originally in the 1950s by an Episcopalian minister named Theodore Weddle. And uh, it has been so often repeated by so many people that you probably have heard it before, But every time I hear it, 
it strikes a deep chord in me. And so I want to read that modern parable for you. I want you to pay attention because I'm not going to put the words on there, but I'll just give you a few accompanying images to bring it to life. Here's how the parable reads. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and gave of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought, and new crews were trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge for those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully because they used it as a sort of club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club's initiations were held. About this time, a large ship wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick. The beautiful new club was in chaos, so the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of the shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split among the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as the primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station. And so they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. That's a pretty convicting story. And it tells a story of what we today in the business sector might call mission drift, where things starts as one thing, but over time, people who get together start caring about other things. And it doesn't take very long for people to forget why they gathered together in the first place. That apart from that first mission, that first purpose, they might not even be friends. I think it's easy to see where the pastor who wrote this parable was trying to go. And it reminds us 
of how high a priority it should be for the church and for we who follow Jesus Christ to make sure that other people who are living their lives without Jesus come to know who he is and discover the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ for themselves. You know, the title of the message this morning is Intercession, which is, of course, the noun form of the word intercede. Here's what that word means. To intercede is to act or interpose on behalf of someone in difficulty or trouble as by pleading or petition. Do you see that? It's to get involved, to intervene in some way on behalf of someone else in trouble as by pleading or petition. Intercession is messy, costly work. It absolutely requires sacrifice. You cannot intercede for people without a willingness to pay a price because at the very nature of it, it is to do something you don't have to do. You're not obligated to do. It means you're getting involved because you're driven by the motive of love. You know, in a couple months, we're going to celebrate Christmas. And at Christmas, we recognize the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The idea that God saw our fallenness and our lostness, and he did not phone in some long-distance solution safely ensconced behind the gates of heaven. But Jesus Christ came down to us in the muck and mire of our filth and our brokenness. He got involved in the most direct possible way. You know, today the words, I'll pray for you, are a way of saying, um, how can I get you and your whole problem to be a little further away from me? I, that's being a little cynical. Some of you actually pray. But when we say, I'll pray for you, that's another way of saying, okay, God, thank God that's not happening to me, but I'll think of you if I remember. The spirit of the incarnation is that I'm brokenhearted by what's happening to you, and I cannot just think about you in the safety of my own life. But I feel compelled to get involved with you and to step in at some level and bear a burden with you. And the greatest burden anybody could bear is to face this messed up, cruddy life without the hope of Jesus Christ. I honest to God, now that I know Jesus and I actually understand what he makes possible, I, I cannot fathom what it's like to live in this crappy world without him. How do people do it? How, how is there not more complete despair and hopelessness everywhere? This world kills the human soul. Life on this planet, and especially in this society, destroys the human spirit. We were not built to live in a world like this. And apart from Jesus Christ, there is just so much hopelessness. And to get involved in that lostness and despair is one of the most Christ-like things we can do. So I'll I'll define the word another way. I believe that intercession is selflessness put into practice. Do you understand that? Selflessness is not an attitude, but ultimately for those who follow Jesus, selflessness becomes a practice. It becomes more than a sentiment, more than private words, It becomes touching the life of another person and taking their burden onto ourselves as our own burden. And I don't know if you've ever had a car that had wheels that went out of alignment. 
But a, a car with bad alignment pulls to one side or the other. And I believe that selflessness doesn't come naturally for human beings. Would you agree? That if you just leave us alone, we don't naturally, tr- we don't naturally pull or drift towards more selflessness. We actually pull towards selfishness. And that's why I think life-on-life ministry has always been such an important part of developing selflessness in us. Because left to our own devices, I guarantee you, every last one of us, myself included, will keep pulling towards selfishness and self-centeredness. Unless a loving brother or sister tells us, hey, you know you're pulling to the left. Let's go back this way. The way you're making choices, the way you're talking makes me very uncomfortable. I feel like everything is about you, 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 and that's not really the way it works. We need each other to remember all the time that the call of following Jesus is a call ultimately to sacrificial selflessness put into practice. So if that's the way we define intercession, let's, exp- let's explore in this, par- uh, this portion of the letter to Timothy what intercession really looks like. And what's interesting to me is the first thing that Paul says is probably the last thing we think about as a first response. He says, pray. We can intercede for others through prayer. Look at, look at the way he words this. He says, I urge then, first of all, so by first of all, he's actually re, re, you know, addressing public worship the way he wants it to happen, but he's saying, look, Before any other response, when you see the burden of another human being, when you see the lostness and brokenness of the world, I know that there is in many of us a crusader mindset, a desire to fight for what is right, to get involved in justice, to carry a picket sign, or just do something, even make a donation, but I can't stand that this is happening. And if you have a crusader's heart, God bless you, I want you to nurture that. But what Paul says is before anything we do will ever make a difference, we've got to plead with God to make a difference. I don't know if you remember back in the, uh, the series on life-changing conversations, one of the phrases that I was trying to teach us is, before we talk to people about God, we have to talk to God about those people. That before we corner an innocent, unsuspecting friend in a coffee shop, I, I, in fact, I was at Starbucks yesterday putting the finishing touches on this message, and a very loud man walked in with what appeared to be about a six- or seven-year-old daughter, and he was in the loudest possible. I had to put on headphones just because I couldn't think about my stuff because I was listening to his conversation. He was just giving her this unceasing, he didn't even breathe, this nonstop 20-minute lecture on predestination. It was a little heavy for a six-, seven-year-old kid. To her credit, she's a future theologian in the making. She was asking some very good questions. But before we corner unsuspecting friends in a coffee shop and start trying to persuade them with logic and with argument and evidence, before we start yelling at our kids for not acting like Christians, before they become Christians, let's remember this. No one person can change another human being's heart. Our relationship with God is birthed not in a human conversation, but in a divine transaction. It cannot happen any other way. Just like you know that there's only really one way for a human being to be conceived physically, and that is for an egg and a sperm to unite. 
There is no other way for a person to begin a relationship with Jesus except that somewhere in the depths, the bowels of their human being, God flips a switch and opens their hearts up to him. Without that happening, all the books you throw at them, all the persuasion, all the airtight logic will not win the day. And that's why before we talk to people about God, we've got to learn to talk to God about people and say, I care about this person. I'm not on some agenda to win. As it's not like Amway where the more people you recruit to our side, you get an upline and downline and you get extra brownie points in heaven. It doesn't work that way. This is not a multi-level marketing scheme. It is a kingdom born out of love, real love for other people. And if you don't love those people, don't talk to them. Don't talk to them. Because those unloving words will inoculate and poison their hearts against the, the glorious truth of the gospel. So we need to learn that the most important work of sharing our faith happens when we talk to God about the people that we want to see come to know him. Some of you might be married to somebody. You're not, you're not walking with Jesus. You might be married to someone who keeps talking at you but has not talked to God. Can I just please commend you? Talking to other people without talking to God doesn't work. Now here's something I, I've come to learn is you can learn a lot about a person by what they pray for. You want to know what is in a person's heart? Just do this. Walk up to one of your friends and go, hey, listen, no particular request. Would you just pray for me right now? And listen to what they pray for. Because in, as a person is trying to be loving and generous to you and pray over you, they will pray the best possible scenario over you. In their mind, what constitutes the best? So they might say, oh, help them become rich, help them become healthy. Whatever they most want for themselves, they will try to give to you through prayer. So listen to what a person prays about. Listen to what they ask for prayer for, and you will know what makes their heart tick. I think the same can be said of a church. You can learn a lot about a church by eavesdropping on their public prayers during a church service. Listen to the story that the late John Stott, one of the great um, uh, anchors of the faith in our generation, who recently went home to the Lord. Listen to what he said about a visit he made to another church some years ago. Some years ago, I attended public worship in a certain church. The pastor was absent on holiday, and as a lay elder led the pastoral prayer, he prayed that the pastor might enjoy a good vacation, which was fine, and that two lady members of the congregation might be healed, which was also fine. We should pray for the sick. But that was all. The intercession can hardly have lasted 30 seconds. Now, I came away saddened, sensing that this church worshipped a little village god of their own devising. There was no recognition of the needs of the world and no attempt to embrace the world in prayer. If you listen to the prayer life of most people, of most churches, it will occur to you very quickly how completely self-absorbed our prayer lives are. Everything we ask of God, we are the direct beneficiaries of God moving in those prayers. Now, I'm not making a blanket statement. Some of you have been on your knees fighting for others for a long time. Don't be discouraged by my comments. I, I don't mean to suggest ever that every one of us is doing anything particular. What I'm saying is this is a trend we see all the time in our society today, in the churches today. 
that our prayer lives are almost exclusively wrapped up about my family, my health, my business, my neighbors, my kids, my whatever, my pocketbook. And it's rare to see us weeping and beating our chests in prayer with the same fervency for anything or anyone outside of our own selves and our own immediate tribe. And I think that what Paul is saying is, I know how natural a drift that is. And so he says a very potent word. Whenever you see the word urge in Scripture, that's a word that says, if there were any stronger term, I'd use it. I'm begging you on my knees. I'm pushing you with all the force I can muster. This matters. You have to do it this way. And look how expansive he is. Pray for everyone. In fact, even pray for your Government officials, your leaders, from the mayor of your town on up to the president. That's a huge statement considering that the king at the time that Paul was writing these words was the Roman emperor Nero, who was among the most vile persecutors of the Christians known throughout history. He was a horrible persecutor of Christians. And yet even so, I think what Paul is saying is we love to make a sport of complaining about the leaders who have authority over us. But I say to you, pray for them. Pray that they would come to know Jesus. In fact, pray for everybody who has had influence in your life or over your life. The very people who are the subject of all of your most frequent complaints, those are the very people you need to pray for. Because do you know why they have hurt you? They hurt you because they don't know Jesus as their king. I want you to imagine for a moment that the person who caused you the most grief and pain, how differently they would have lived their lives with you if they knew that Jesus was their master. If what they did and what they said was what Jesus would have them say or do, imagine what a different impact they would have made on your life. And yet we, we react to broken, lost people by condemning them in our hearts. Why should a person without Jesus act like a person with Jesus? I have not experienced or learned of any other power over the human heart like a relationship with Jesus Christ to change at the heart of it what a person is like. I've experienced it in my own life in two significant ways that I've told you about a number of times. I used to have the most profane spirit. I loved swearing. I had turned it into an art form. I could still do it. I I could swear better than anyone in this room. I promise you. And yet, over time, I have felt the anger, the the venom start to leak out of my being. I haven't just learned to say things like, oh, fiddlesticks, oh, good night, oh, snap. I don't say the euphemisms. I feel like little by little, God has leaked out the anger and venom that drove the profanity. I used to also love money so much. I loved money. And today, I can honestly say God has taken away the love of money. He's also taken away complete regard for money, which is not a good thing when you have to manage a family. But those are two areas in my life where I've experienced significant change of my being, not just of my behavior, but of my being. I don't know anything else that has the power to produce that kind of deep and lasting change in people. And so we pray and we remember that it is a good thing to pray for this because we're only agreeing with God when we pray like this. 
He wants the vilest people on earth to bow their knees before him. We're not praying against God when we pray for people to know him. We're praying right along with him in agreement. And so it's good that we learn what an important priority it is to pray for those who should know him. There's a second way that we can intercede. Though we have talked to God about people, eventually it is important to talk to those people about God. Um, I, I remember when it first became illegal to talk on cell phones. Do you remember that back in January of last year? Most people don't even know it. I still see people this day, like two years later, still talking on their cell phones while they're driving. And what I can't figure out is, why has my wife been pulled over and ticketed for that? But these people are riding right next to a police officer. They're like, hello, I almost want to make a citizen's arrest. And that though that law affected everyone, I imagine that tons and tons of motorists were pulled over and their first words were, how the heck was I supposed to know that the law changed? I mean, think about the challenge of when you make a law that affects every citizen, how are we supposed to get the word out? Even in this day of the internet and of televised public service announcements of cell phones and email blasts and all of that, it's still extremely challenging to get the word out about something that affects everyone. And even when you do get the word out, half the people delete it. They ignore it. So here's the thing. When something affects everyone, how do you get them to understand? If that's challenging in today's hyper-connected world, imagine how challenging it was in the ancient world when a king made an edict. He proclaimed something He's like saying something like, I want anybody wearing yellow t-shirts to be put to death immediately. Some yellow guy cut me off on his horse while I was riding. I spilled my coffee. Anyone with a yellow shirt dies. Off with their heads. Now, if that's an edict, do you see how serious the implications are? Nathan's dead. Right? I mean, <laughs> you see that? He's one of the, you can tell he's right away. He's like, dude, I'm the only one with a yellow t-shirt. <laughs> but do you understand that if we'd said that, that's a serious matter. The cost of being on the wrong side of that law is life or death. And yet, how do you let the people know about this law which has somehow affected all of humanity? And so Paul says it was for this purpose to let humanity know that this is what is happening. That this is the God who has made us. This is the way redemption works. This is what is possible for us. He was appointed a herald. That's a very powerful word. The word herald is is this. When an ancient king proclaimed an edict, he would dispatch a small army of messengers on horseback to travel throughout his realm, making sure that every village was told this is the law. Woe be to the person who was taking a nap when the herald came through the town square and none of their friends told him, shh, don't tell him. He always wears yellow t-shirts. He's going to get his soon. You know, poor guy, if he didn't get the memo. Or woe to the village who had a herald who was having stomach pains and said, you know, I can't make it to the last village. They're going to have to just hear about it through word of mouth. Do you understand that the edict of the king mattered, and when the herald came through your village, only a fool would not show up to hear, because a king had absolute authority. 
And he defined reality for the people in his realm. There is a legal doctrine, I'm probably going to mispronounce it, ignorantia juris non excusat, which means ignorance is no protection under the law. It offers no excuse. When you got pulled over for, for gabbing on your cell phone, and you're like, huh, what? Officer Boardman, I had no idea that it was illegal. I know that in Chicago, no one's getting tickets for talking on the cell phone because you got much bigger fish to fry out there. But, you know, out here in Woodfield country, that's like, like a big crime, right? Talking on your cell phone. And as you're talking on your cell phone, the policeman pulls you over. You can't say to him, well, it's not my fault. I didn't know the law. Because it's impossible to tell everyone everything, there is an incumbent moral responsibility for the citizens of any realm to be alert to the laws that affect them and to tell their fellow citizens things that would affect each other. Without those two things in operation, people genuinely curious about how things work and people telling their friends important news, there's no government that could hold everything together And you would have chaos if people said, hey, guess what? I didn't know murder was wrong. I just killed the guy because I was mad. Now I know. Next guy mad and I'm not going to kill. You'd have chaos. And so there is no protection under the law just because you said, I didn't know. Because this is true not just of governmental laws, but of spiritual laws, it is absolutely important that we who follow Jesus understand we are the heralds of the King of Kings today. Question is, are we going to be faithful heralds or will we be the, the mailman who takes home a bag of mail he's too lazy to deliver and burns it in a 55-yelling drum in his backyard? You know that happens every day in America? That's why you don't get your mail sometimes. hate to say it. If you're a mail carrier, I'm sure you're one of the good ones, but I'm saying it happens. Here's what Paul writes later on to the church in Corinth. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That is our interceding for others through the proclamation of the gospel. Let me give you one final way that we are able to intercede for the world. And when I say the world, I'm not talking about the whole planet. I'm talking about your world. The people who make up your world, those people you actually care about. He says, having talked to God about people and talking to people about God, let's finish the journey with the important last step. Nobody wants to hire a fitness trainer who's out of shape. Nobody wants to hire a financial planner who's broke. The point is this. If you are going to bear a message to me, it's absolutely important for me to know that that message is alive in you. That before you tell me what a difference it's going to make for me, I've got to know that it's made a difference for you. In other words, you are the visual aid, the physical expression of this glorious truth. If our lives don't reflect 
the transforming power of Jesus Christ, our message will not ring true. And don't you know that the biggest hindrance to the gospel in America today is really the church and our hypocrisy? And that's the bottom line. I don't say that to produce guilt, but simply to state the fact. If the Holy Spirit produces guilt, so be it. It's out of my hands. Okay. But I feel a lot of guilt over this. That consistently, when I talk to cynical atheists and say, what is your biggest problem with Christianity? He goes, people like you, that's the biggest problem. You talk like it's going to be this great life, that everything's going to change. But I don't see any difference. You know how many Christians I work with? The only difference is you guys don't get to sleep in on Sundays. That's about all the real difference I see. And someone confiscates a portion of your money. Aside from that, dude, you and me, we're the same. We watch the same TV shows. We both swear when someone cuts us off on the road. Your marriage, my marriage, same shape. Your kids, my kids act the same. The way you make major life decisions, the way I make major life decisions. What's, what's really the difference? Is there really any difference between you and me? Because if there isn't, shut up already. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that you have power to control everything in your life. But the things that we are able to tap into, those things which Christ has been laboring to change in us if we would only submit our hearts to him, those things we have power to realize, don't we? And so he says to the men, and by the way, if you read verses 8 through 10 in isolation, that's a big mistake. Because you can make a whole theological framework out of what is really just an illustration. It's a general principle Don't be destructive. Don't be destructive. So he says to the men, look, he's writing to Timothy in a context where false teachers had screwed up the church. People were angry at each other. People were really upset and saying, what you're saying is ridiculous. That's absolutely a lie. And it was tearing the church apart. Some of us grew up in a church like that where elders were punching each other in the face in the hallway of the church. And police were being called to the premises. Anybody ever witness anything that ugly in church? Yeah, I, you're like, I don't want to remember it, but yes, a lot of us live through that. Church splits, one after another, fights. And is there anything more uncomfortable than watching a couple people fight in front of you? I mean, there's one of the most uncomfortable things is to watch two people go at it, just angry, fighting in front of you while you're like, why am I even here? And they're both trying to pull you to their side of the argument. You know what he said then? He said this. It's ridiculous, right? Am I right? And he's, you know what she said? She did this then. I'm like, I don't even want to be here. I hear you both wanting to pull me into your side of the fight, but all I'm thinking is I want to run away from both of you. It is so uncomfortable to be in the presence of conflict. I still do it because I love people. But if you're trying to pitch a message of reconciliation and peace, and all you can do is fight and be stuck in unforgiveness, If your best verdict on a conflict in your life is, you know what, I can't fight anymore, I'm just going to avoid them. If that's your verdict, your message cannot ring true. Because the gospel has not had real power to transform your greatest challenge, how can it overcome theirs? Drink the Kool-Aid before you serve it to others. 
And he's saying the conflict among Christians is one of the most destructive barriers to other people hearing and receiving a message of reconciliation. If we're going to get the world to stop fighting with God, we have to stop fighting with each other. We cannot pull punches on that. I know the deep pain of relational conflict. My hands are deeply stained with the blood of other people's conflicts as well as my own. It is never trivial. It never feels easy. Most of the time, it feels impossible. But such is the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ that what we declare impossible is possible in Christ. If you don't believe it, then you don't believe. And you have to say like that faith-filled man said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I will not park in a place that's comfortable for me, but in violation of the spirit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he says to the men, dudes, stop fighting, because it's seriously destructive to the message of the gospel. Then he says to the ladies, not that the ladies don't fight, but he says, don't be distractive. Okay, do you like that little wordplay? I worked hard on that. Don't be destructive. But he also said, look, don't be distractive. Some people have really done a number with these verses saying, look how misogynistic, look how sexist. Come on, really, get over it. He's not saying to women, you don't get to be pretty. All Christian women should dress like Pat from Saturday Night Live in gender ambiguous, ugly clothing, large khakis and a big sweatshirt. And, you know, go ahead. Do your hair a little bit. Think about what you're wearing, match colors. That's all fine, okay? I mean, he's not saying Christians have to be ugly. But here's what he's saying. Be proper and decent. Look nice, but not so nice that you're getting in the way of my sales pitch. There is a message here. There is a guest of honor, someone really trying hard to draw people's attention to himself, and you cannot play the role of distracting people from that message. The worst advertising is advertising that's so funny, that's so salacious, that's so whatever, that you're just laughing or you're lusting or you're angry, but you forgot what product they're selling. Do you understand what I'm saying? I think a lot of people get this wrong. There is somebody who is begging for attention in the church And if your motive, he's simply saying this, if your motive is to draw attention to your sensuality or to your wealth, you're distracting people from the critical, limited attention they have to pay to the one who is really pleading for them to open their hearts to him. And so he simply says to the women, in a spirit of love and humility, he doesn't say this to the men, because who's looking at men? We're disgusting. We're just... If we keep ourselves from scratching our butts, that's a victory for most men. Ladies, when's the last time you, you looked at a guy here? I, I don't know. You're like, I can't even think about singing right now. That dude is just so fine. He... When's the last time you couldn't pay attention to sermon because all this was doing the talking? Zero conflict, right? Zero temptation. Except my wife. She can't even concentrate right now. But look... He said to the women, because women, let's face it, clothing, cosmetics, all of it, you are much easier to look at than we are. 
and is one of the great sources of power given to women is that you can blind everyone in a room if you're having a good day. I don't care who you are. You know when you're having, that girl walks in, mm-hmm. The hair is working, the shoes, everything. Oh, if I could feel like this every day, I would be Beyonce. Right? Amen? Don't you? And you know when it's working, when you got it going on. Every time you're feeling bad, you'll pull out that same outfit, won't you? This one works. I always feel good, empowered. And what he's saying is we get that, but don't let that be the motive for the way you adorn yourself coming to church. It's to draw all this attention to my body, my wealth, me, me, me. Because in service of Christ, there's someone else. In other words, he's saying, women, don't see yourself as an art object, but as a mirror. When people look at you, do your very best to reflect him. Because he's the one they desperately need to see right now. In your home, in your relationship, in your bedroom, turn it to 11. Go for it. But when we're gathered to see Jesus, let nothing we do destroy or distract from that central plea of the heart of God. Because what we read is that he wants people to know him. Ancient kings lost no sleep over whether or not their subjects knew the law or not. But that's not the heart of our king. Our king desperately cares about each person and wants them to know the truth. That's who we serve. I don't know if this is a priority for us, but I know this. Everyone I've met who is committed to the spread of the gospel and to sharing Jesus with others saw that modeled for them by someone else. Early in their Christian journey, they met someone who accepted that as a central part of the Christian experience, I want to generously and joyfully give away Jesus to others. And because they saw how important it was, it became a way of life for them as well. I think one of the greatest gifts we can give away to another person in life-on-life ministry is a deep concern for people who have to face this life here in this mess without the hope that Jesus offers. That's one of the greatest gifts we can impart to a fellow Christian is a zeal for the good news of Jesus Christ and a commitment to extend his invitation to the people we care about. Now, my aim is not to get you with a stack of four spiritual laws, tracks to like bother people who are shopping in Woodfield. Okay? I actually don't believe in that kind of... I shouldn't say I don't believe in it. God's used it. It's not my preferred methodology. I've done it many, many times. In fact, in my evangelism class in seminary, I was required to go through Amish country and knock door to door. Do you know how boring it is to go through Amish country and try to lead people to Christ? If you, were to not, if you were to be at the heaven's gates, Jesus said, why should I let you in? These people all pray around the clock. So, it, But I was like, I was realizing nobody who's at a mall wants to hear life lessons. They want to find a sale. Or they just want their wife to be done already. <laughs> Holding her purse, sitting on a bench, looking depressed, right? That guy doesn't want me to come talk to him. He just goes, Stop. I hate my life right now. Don't touch me. 
But there are many people who are waiting for a conversation. And I think it's important that we explore what in our hearts is driving whether we do or don't. Proclaim the good news. Pray. Intercede for others. And practice our faith loud and clear. I don't want guilt to be the result of this message. I want understanding and conviction to be the result of this message. And I'll close with these words. There is no legitimate version of New Testament Christianity that does not include the giving away of the good news of Jesus to other people. There simply is no version of Christianity that is entirely a self-improvement program for our benefit alone. It has always been a central pillar of this faith to tell your fellow citizens about the King of Kings. It has always been. And let's explore in the safety of a place with God in quiet what he has to say to us about that. I'd rather God told you than I told you. So let's do that right now. I'm going to ask you to bow with me. And I want you to think about what the words I love you mean when you speak them. When you think about the people in your life who you genuinely care about who are outside the faith. They haven't darkened the doors of a church in a long, long time. But in your heart, when you think about that person, all you feel is love. I want you to reflect before the Lord in quiet. Beyond the sentiment of love, what has that love, that deep love, translated into? Because they don't need just your love. They need the love of Christ. They need that love more than any other love they'll ever find. I want to ask you to plead with God to awaken this heart in you. Why don't we just do that now in quiet for a few minutes? Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.